0: Welcome to the TheJournal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what is being done for survivors of mother and baby homes? Over the past year, The Journal has been making a podcast about Ireland's mother and baby home system. Redacted Lives was released in November and a new episode aired every Thursday for six weeks. Most people in the country will have heard stories from the mother and baby homes, but the true lifelong trauma they caused is laid bare in the documentary series. One of the makers of the podcast, Orla Ryan, is joining me today to tell us everything she learned about the system, which saw families forcibly separated, children buried in disused sewage chambers, and mothers treated inhumanely by those tasked with looking after them. Thanks so much for being here, Orla. Thanks for having me. Before we chat, here is a clip from Redacted Lives, where a mother and baby home survivor speaks about being forced to return to Ireland from England by a member of the clergy.
1: Terry begged her aunt to not let them take her. But it was no use. The priest dragged her, kicking and screaming, from her aunt's house into a waiting car. The two nuns watched, silently. I was screaming, hysterical. You know, begging,
0: begging, please, please stop him. Stop him, somebody stop him. When he eventually got me in the back of that car, from my aunt's tea he drove. I started to become invisible. Orla, as I said in my introduction there, most people in Ireland will have heard about the mother and baby home system. But can you explain what a mother and baby home
1: was? Yeah, so mother and baby homes existed throughout Ireland throughout the 20th century. And they were institutions to which women and girls who became pregnant outside of marriage were sent to. Um, throughout much of the 20th century due to the influence of the Catholic Church um, becoming pregnant outside of wedlock was viewed as a terrible sin. It was one of the most shameful things a person could do. So if a woman or a girl became pregnant outside of marriage she was very often sent to one of these institutions. So the commission of investigation was set up in 2015 and it was tasked with examining why and how women and girls ended up in these institutions, their conditions while they lived there, um, the infant mortality rates and the maternal mortality rates in these institutions and the exit pathways for women and their children. Um, The commission uh, was tasked with examining 14 mother and baby homes and four county homes. So of those 18 institutions, 56,000 mothers were sent there About 80% of those were aged from 18 to 29, and about 5,600 were under the age of 18. So that would have been, you know, in some cases it was cases of rape and incest. So 56,000 women passed through the um, institutions examined by the commission, and they were all women and girls who would become pregnant outside of marriage. And what did they find
0: out about the conditions in these institutions?
1: So it varied from place to place and the commission was tasked at looking at these institutions that operated from 1922 to 1998. So conditions did improve vastly in those latter decades, but particularly in the first few decades under investigation, there were really appalling conditions in some of these places. Um, County homes were former workhouses in in most cases. The conditions there were very poor and the commission also flagged um, the tomb mother and baby home, which has become infamous for other reasons now, and the Kilrush home as well as particular particularly bad. Kilrush operated from 1922 to 1932, so 90 to 100 years ago, um, but it did say in particular, there's a there's a harrowing line in the report where they say that Kilrush, the institution there, was almost continuously asking for coffins, which will give an, an indication of the mortality rates there. So conditions did vary from place to place. Um, the institution in Dunboyne and County Meath, for example, was listed as having relatively good conditions, so it really did vary depending on where you were sent. What's the difference between a mother and baby home and a county home? So county homes were generally old workhouses that were essentially, I guess, repurposed and given a new name. Um, generally, um, the local health authorities were involved in running them. The local health authorities was also involved in running Pelletstown. So that's what became known as St. Patrick's, um, Tomb and Kilrush. Um, mother and baby homes then were generally run or staffed by religious orders. Um, after Britain left, I suppose the, the Catholic Church and Protestant orders filled a vacuum there. In terms of institutions for unmarried mothers and, and children as well who've been abandoned in some cases a place for them to go. So mother and baby homes were typically staffed or run by religious orders but did receive funding from the state whereas county homes were typically old workhouses that were, were running um, in conjunction with the local authority. How did this all come back up then in 2015? Basically the Commission was set up in 2015 on the back of the work of one woman Catherine Corliss whose name has become synonymous now with mother and baby homes. Um, it was actually, uh, it's just been the 10th anniversary of when she first published her research in the Journal of the Old Tomb Society, a local history paper. So about 10 years ago, Catherine was going to a local history class, and she was struggling to come up with a topic to look into, basically. And she was chatting to her a lecturer, and she recalled um, a story that she knew from the 70s, where two young boys were um, apparently robbing apples from a local garden. The man chased them away. They, they ran over, they, they jumped over the wall, and they landed on a slab of concrete that kind of opened and when they looked underneath they could see what appeared to be tiny bones. So they went home, they told their parents, um authorities looked into it and they just said, oh, they're probably, you know, um bones from when um there was a workhouse here or from the days of the famine, you know, where there were there were mass graves like this, or not necessarily mass graves, but where people were buried in places like this and they they were unmarked. So basically a, a priest blessed it and it was covered over again and it wasn't really talked about after that. So Catherine, decades later, was like, God, I wonder whatever actually happened there. I'd love to know more about... Um, what exactly had happened. So she started looking into it and she um, got records for about 250 children and published her research in the local history journal, basically asking a question at the end of it, not coming to any conclusions because she didn't know. But at that stage, she said, there, you know, the burial place of about 250 children who died in the institution were unknown. So she didn't know that this was a fraction of the overall number. She kept looking into it over the next couple of years and found out that, in fact, almost 800 children who died in the institution there was no burial place on record for them. So in, in 2014, then um, Alison O'Reilly in the Mail on Sunday, she ran a story um, saying that up to 800 children were potentially buried here. We didn't know where they were buried. So on the back of this, there was international outrage and the government set up a commission. So that was set up in 2015 by then Children's Minister, um, James Reilly. Um, so it was tomb really was the catalyst that, that set this series of events in motion. And then what was the commission asked to do exactly? Yeah, so the commission was asked to look at how and why women and girls ended up in these institutions and their exit pathways. So how long they would stay there and how they would leave, what would they, they would go on to do. It was tasked to look at living conditions and mortality rates among the mothers and children, post mortem and burial practices. One of the headline figures that we found um, when the commission's report came out almost two years ago now was that around 9000 children had died in the institutions across um, the time period in question and about 200 mothers had also died. So it was mainly tasked at looking at how women and girls ended up there, the living conditions and then the mortality rates as well.
0: Yeah. What else did its report find?
1: So one of the most startling headline figures was the fact that um, around 9000 children died in the institutions um, in question. That's about a 15% mortality rate that was you know a big standout figure for people Um, I suppose the level of infant mortality was very shocking but to some people not surprising Um, most of those deaths did happen in the first few decades under investigation by the commission when obviously standards in general were poor and there was a high infant mortality rate but there was definitely it was in some places it was double the national average in these institutions so clearly children weren't being as well looked after as they should have been um, or could have been perhaps and one thing that people flagged when the commission um, was set up was that it was somewhat limited by its terms of reference it wasn't specifically tasked with looking at adoption or illegal adoption and it didn't find very much evidence of those things happening but it wasn't specifically tasked with looking at that it was more um, I suppose interested in what happened within the institutions how people were treated and um, the level of death as well in these institutions. Yeah so we got a picture of
0: what life was like in some of those institutions but there were issues with the report and um, a lot of survivors weren't happy when it came out why was that?
1: Yeah. So basically, um, when the report came out, as people tend to do, they go straight to the executive summary because that summarizes everything that's in it. And as we know now, it was, you know, almost 3000 pages long. So it was a very dense, long report. A lot of people took issue with the fact that um, the commission said it found little evidence of forced adoption, forced incarceration, um, little evidence of women being forced into the institutions by the church or state when some women had gone to the commission and gave their firsthand accounts of that happening to them. Another story we hear in, in the podcast in Redacted Lives is Terry Harrison, who describes, you know, she escaped, she got as far as England and was forced back onto a plane by a priest. She was sent to Best for Mother and Baby Institution. She escaped there. She was intercepted and then put into St. Pat's Mother and Baby Institution in Dublin. So there were women like Terry who were very confused and harsh that, you know, she had gone to the commission, given her account. And yes, she is just one woman, but she's not the only woman who went through a similar process. So survivors were hurt that they had given testimony that seemingly was at odds with the findings.
0: Yeah. So tell us what else we hear in the podcast that might be at odds with the findings of the commission.
1: One of the things we hear about in Terry's story is the fact that um, Terry had quite a difficult pregnancy and childbirth, and she lost a lot of blood um, during her childbirth, during her labour. So she was sent to hospital um, to get blood transfusions. And when she came back to St Pat's, she said this was somewhat unusual. But because she had been unwell, she got to spend extra time with her baby, with Niall. Um, so she had bonded with him over several weeks. and. She couldn't see him whenever she wanted, but she could see him more often than other mothers because of her situation. Um, but she recalls it's it's really harrowing. She would go to you know the nursery at set times to feed him. And she went there one morning and his cot was empty. So she had no idea that he was being taken away. She had always expressed a desire to the nuns that she wanted to keep him. Um, so when she went, obviously, she was absolutely devastated and she tried to get him back but was told she couldn't. Um, she maintains that she never signed adoption papers. She believes her signature was forged on those. So she is one of the many women who say, I never send adoption papers and, and yet my child was adopted. So that was at odds with one of the Commission's findings. Again, it wasn't specifically tasked with looking into adoption, but it did look at consent and foreign adoptions. Um, the commission and it said it found you know little evidence of forced adoption, but Terry was an example of one woman who said you know well what happened with my baby I never signed adoption papers and he was taken. So while maybe on you know a large level they didn't find evidence of this, there was obviously some level you know even if it was anecdotal or a small number of women this did happen to women. Terry was one of the people who gave evidence to the investigation committee. She was one of the 64 people who went to that. Um, one of the issues that became clear after the commission's report came out was that part of the reasons that the findings contradicted some of the testimony was that the commission gathered evidence in two different ways so there were two committees there was the investigation committee which was kind of like giving um, evidence in court you were cross-examined and you had to swear that what you said was true or you know you were questioned in a robust manner and then a confidential committee was um, for you to give your um, evidence in a quote-unquote sympathetic atmosphere where you know you would be allowed to tell your story share your evidence but you wouldn't be you know grilled on every aspect of what you said and um, so Terry was one of the people who went to the investigation committee. So, you know, hers was under oath. She was angry as to why her evidence was not deemed, you know, kind of noteworthy enough for it to say, well, actually, you know, there are these cases where forced adoption and forgery did happen. The, the commission acknowledged that it probably did happen in some cases, but it says there was a lack of evidence overall in, in terms of cases like that.
0: So when all of this criticism happened, have the commissioners said much about it?
1: No, when this happened, um, initially, there was a call for the commissioners to appear before the Eructus Children's Committee. Um, Kathleen Function, the chairperson, wrote to them a couple of times last year after the commission report came out, asking would they appear before the committee. They turned it down. But one thing that you know frustrated survivors and Minister Roderick Gorman said frustrated him was the fact that um, Professor Mary Daly gave a talk um, at an online event for Oxford University in June 2021. So the commissioners had kind of said, we're not going to speak about this publicly the report stands for itself and it should be read in its entirety so we're not going to make any public comment beyond that but mary daly did make remarks at this webinar in june 2021 she said things like the the commission was kind of tied by its terms of reference and that it could only really give you know full weight to people who went to the investigation committee not the confidential committee just uh, 64 people went to the investigation committee over 500 survivors gave evidence to the confidential committee so mary daly basically said they had to focus on on the evidence that was given to the investigation committee which was a much smaller number of people and she also said there was a looming threat of legal action from the religious orders so they had to be careful again on what they printed and what they said shortly after she gave that speech um, the commissioners were asked again to come before the Uroclis Children's Committee, they declined but in that letter um, to Kathleen Function Justice Yvonne Murphy who was the chair said that Daly's comments had been taken out of context, she said it wasn't fair to say that testimony had been discarded that yes, testimony was treated differently had been given to the investigation committee or the confidential committee but that the confidential committee which has its own part of the report by itself she said that that was still very you know a significant and important piece of the record of these institutions but she said that because even with the 500 people that was only a fraction of the tens of thousands of people who passed through it so it couldn't be taken as you know um, a comprehensive history of what happened in these institutions.
0: And now we'll just take a clip here of Roderick O'Gorman talking about that frustration from episode six of Redacted Lives.
1: My own personal view is
0: that some engagement in terms of the workings of the commission by the commissioners would have been useful. And I think following the 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 seminar in Oxford, I think it would have been more than useful. I think it would have been um If a determination was taken not to engage and then for one of them to very clearly engage I think that was you know that was very upsetting for relatives Uh, and I think at that point some engagement would have been useful. So what have survivors done about this report then if they're not happy with it?
1: So survivors have, you know, they've done a number of things Um, many of them have written to TDs. They've held protests outside Leinster House. They're really pushing for um, their voices to be heard in other ways. Um, we had a significant um, court case last year. People might remember that um, two test cases, eight women brought um, legal cases against the state over how their testimony was handled and how the commission operated and its findings two women were used as test cases, Mary Harney, who appears in Redacted Lives, and Philomena Lee, who people will probably remember her life story from the Judy Dench film in 2013. So um, basically their lawyers had argued that because they were identifiable in the final report, their names not given, but because both of those women in particular have been very public in their advocacy. You could identify them. If you if you knew Mary, knew Philomena, you'd know, okay, that's their section. So their lawyers successfully argued that they should have been given a copy of the sections of the report that related to them prior to publication and correct any inaccuracies. The women said this didn't happen. And so inaccuracies in their testimony ended up in the final report. So there was a lot of frustration over that. There was a settlement in December 2021 where the state acknowledged that, yes, the women should have been given access to the report Um, beforehand Um, so there's been cases like that and you know some some survivors are also considering future legal action if they remain excluded from the redress scheme for example.
0: And we hear that in Redacted Lives that it's such a current issue with people still trying to find the family members that are lost to the system. In the Birth Information and Tracing Act we do see some developments for adopted people what does it allow them to do?
1: Yeah, so one of the main pieces of the government's um, reaction and response to the report and what was in it, one of the main pillars of that is the redress scheme that's currently being debated in the This It will likely pass, but there has been, you know, much opposition to it among the opposition TDs. Um, basically, what they're offering is... The scheme will cover about 34,000 survivors and it's estimated there are about 58,000 living survivors um, of the institutions. So that means 24,000 survivors are excluded from the current scheme. Um, The government has continually said this is the largest scheme of its kind in the history of the state. It's estimated it'll cost 800 million euro and they're saying... It's as broad as they could make it and that, you know, for the people who aren't included in the scheme, such as many adopted people or people born into the system, they're, you know, hoping they'll get their quote unquote redress through access to records and memorialization other ways rather than financial compensation. So basically the um, the amounts on offer, they vary greatly. So I should say that all mothers who spent time in institutions are entitled to payment but people who spent time in an institution as a child are only entitled to a payment if they spent more than six months in an institution. Many of them were adopted just before they were six months, so they aren't eligible for a payment. But the women who were in there, um, mothers who spent three months are entitled to around €5,000 if you spent up to a year there, you're entitled to around €12,500. The payments do go up to higher levels. If you spent more than 10 years in an institution, you're eligible for €65,000, which is obviously a much larger figure, but very few women spent that long in an institution. The commission's report itself said the average length of stay was five months. So you're looking at something around maybe €10,000. It will vary um, depending on exactly how many days you're in an institution. So it varies a lot. Um, but one of the most controversial things since the um, The plans for redress were announced over a year ago and they've changed slightly. But one thing that hasn't changed in that time is the fact that people who spent less than six months in an institution as a child are excluded completely from the scheme. And also it doesn't um, specifically cater for children who were boarded out. That was a precursor to fostering. Um, And also people who were subjected to vaccine trials or who experienced um, racial discrimination or other discriminations in institutions. So it's primarily focused on length of stay in an institution, not what happened to you within the institution. So there's a general level of unhappiness with the scheme as it is? Very much so, and survivors are, you know, they've held a number of protests already and they plan to hold more in the new year. I think there is kind of a sense of you know upset and anger because they feel like it's a done deal. And um, we've had Taoiseach Mihal Martin and Children's Minister Roderick Gorman have both come out and said that unfortunately the scheme can't be extended, so it's unlikely that it will be extended to more people. Um, survivors believe this is down to costs essentially. Um, obviously, the the Ryan Report and the related reader scheme ended up costing over two billion, and you know they're still trying to get funds from religious orders for that years later. So they were trying to it seems as though they were trying to keep costs down um, or at a more limited level with this 800 million euro is still significant obviously but you know not everyone's going to apply that not, not everyone's going to get those upper limits and um, the one of the things we hear in episode six we talked to mary harney and she's discussing you know the the limits to the redress scheme and the fact that it kind of goes against a lot of what the public consultation was last year the government tasks um, oak consulting with carrying out a public consultation process with survivors last year after the report came out and a lot of the survivors said most of the survivors who took part said they wanted a universal common payment for all survivors so once you were in there for any length of time you should have gotten something and they said that length of time could be used as one criteria to calculate any payments beyond that they deemed many other issues as more important like forced family separation being subjected to a vaccine trial and um, lack of vetting for families who adopted or fostered children so they viewed many other issues as a lot more important than length of stay because obviously you could have been in there just for three months but gone through something horrendous um, or if you did or didn't in many cases there was forced family separation the women wanted to keep their children weren't allowed to so that has a lifelong ongoing impact on your life so it doesn't matter how long you were in there essentially it's about the damage the system did and in many cases still does to people's lives.
0: Yeah, and we hear that in Redacted Lives that it's such a current issue with people still trying to find the family members that they lost to the system. And in saying that, then another recent development has been in the Birth Information and Tracing Act. So you've talked about the adopted people being a very significant cohort that, you know, need a lot of things to happen for their life to, to be as full as it could be. What does the Birth Information and Tracing Act allow survivors to do?
1: Yes. Yeah, so this was passed earlier this year, and it came into effect in October, so just a couple of months ago. Um, up until then, adopted people didn't have a legal right to get access to their birth search, their um, early life information, their medical records, things like that, things that non-adopted people have an automatic right to. There has been many attempts um, over the years to allow um, people access to their records, but it's always kind of failed at the final hurdle, generally because the state or the government um, favored a mother's right to privacy over an adopted person's right to information. So they have now finally passed a bill that will allow adopted people to get access to their records. Um, we've known this was coming down the tracks for for months, I suppose, if not years. And um, this particular bill we've known for months and um, that it has been, you know, it's passed and it's coming to effect in October. But it seems as though despite, you know, efforts by Tusla and the Adoption Authority of Ireland in terms of recruiting and training more staff, there still isn't enough staff and not enough staff specialised in this particular area. And um, within weeks of um, the Birth Information and Tracing Act coming into effect and people being allowed to apply for access to their records, and um, people were sent an email saying, sorry, but you're meant to get this within 30 days, but it's more likely to be 90 days. And then um, just a couple of weeks ago earlier this month, um, the journal reported on how people were sent an email saying, actually, you may have to wait until autumn 2023. Some people will get their records before then, but there was a mass email sent out to people recently saying, it could be up to next autumn. About 6,000 people have applied to date and presumably more people will apply, so that could delay it further. But the Adoption Authority of Ireland said, we've just been overwhelmed with the level of requests. So some people will be waiting until late next year to get their records.
0: And again, probably something that was quite foreseeable, given that we've known the figures. Like you said at the start, the Commission looked at 14
1: homes and gave the figure of 56,000 people. So this particular legislation, I suppose it's been debated um, since the Commission's report came out, but it was always known that this would be one of the, you know, um, government reactions to the Commission's report coming out. So Essentially, they've known for years that some piece of legislation would pass and they've known, you know, for over a year that this piece of legislation in some iteration would pass. So they've had plenty of lead in time. So adopted people are frustrated at the lack of, you know, at the delays there. And, you know, they've all kind of been at pains to stress that they know it's not, you know, the individuals working in Thucsler, the AI people on the ground who are trying to do this. But you know they're very frustrated. they've known for a long time that this is coming. So why are you being told 30 days, 90 days, oh, maybe 10 months, you know and that's now. If it's already jumped from 90 days to several months, will it jump again? Um, I was chatting to an adopted person a couple of weeks ago and they were kind of saying, well, like I got in there early, but what about the people who apply next January or next June? You know, are they going to be waiting a year or two years? When are they actually going to get their access to their records? When it was promised that this would happen in one month, if not three months, people are potentially going to be waiting a year for records.
0: Yeah, and a year then to potentially find out information that they desperately need about themselves. The other thing, then, we spoke about Toome being the ca- catalyst for all of this coming up again, really, the work of Catherine Corliss and, you know, the, I guess, more public recognition of what had happened in mother and baby homes. What's the latest at Joom, um especially in the burial ground?
1: Yeah, so um, mentioned earlier, the the excavation that happened in 2016 and 2017, the one that confirmed there was a significant amount of human remains at the site. Dr. Neve McCullough and other archaeologists who worked on that test excavation said that measures put in place at the site were not meant to be in place for longer than six months. They've now been in place for almost six years. Um, but relatives are you know somewhat relieved that the bill finally passed the institutional burials bill finally passed earlier this year and just last month the government launched a recruitment campaign to get a director to oversee a team of people who will finally um, lead the intervention and eventual excavation of the sighted tomb the closing date for that was just last week so um it's unclear yet how many people have applied or how long it could take to actually get that person in situ but um there is finally movement on that um, once a director is appointment appointed, whether that takes weeks or months, hopefully weeks, um, then they will need to, you know, appoint a team around them. And then intervention, there will be, you know, scanning needed to be done before the actual excavation itself then there will be attempts made to, to reassemble the bodies in so far as possible. Um, DNA testing will be done. Relatives who want to, you know, submit their DNA to see if their, their loved one is buried there will be done. Um, and then there will be a long process, I suppose, to see if they can actually identify people who are buried at the site. Roderhul Gorman and others have come out to say, you know, yes, it's great that this is finally happening, but they have forewarned that the process itself could take years.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's painstaking work for
1: a very, very so. small
0: group of experts probably very in the country. So. What prompted you to make the podcast?
1: Through interviewing um, survivors who passed through the system over the last few years, I'd gotten to know a lot of them and the kind of dismay and anger a lot of them felt after the Commission's report came out um, made me really want to help, I suppose, get their voices back in some way. and. So I thought this would be a really good way to literally hear from the women themselves. Um, as many articles as I've written about this, I think the podcast is infinitely more powerful because you hear the women's voices. You hear them tell their own stories in their own voices and I think that's much more powerful. A lot of people have said to me, you know, since listening to it that they didn't realise the extent of what happened. They didn't realize the pregnant from Ireland angle, the angle of women like Terry who who got as far as England and were sent back. You know, they didn't realise perhaps the conditions in these places or that a lot of family members thought, you know, their their daughter or their sister was in, you know, England, when she was actually in an institution somewhere else in the country. Um, So I suppose it was um, the anger that survivors felt and the upset and the hurt that they felt as though they were going to be listened to finally, and then they felt as though their voices weren't heard by the commission that you know unfortunately they thought by going to the confidential committee you know it would be treated as full evidence only to find out that that wasn't the case so they just kind of felt ignored all over again really so I wanted to to help them in some small way to reclaim their voices and be able to tell their own stories and their own voices and their own words. And when you approached them with that idea how did they react? they were they were definitely interested um a lot of people were waiting for something not necessarily this but they wanted to share their story in some way Um, Some of the women had been on the record before, women like Mary Harney, who's been campaigning for years. um, But other people, it was their first time telling their story. um, But they felt really compelled after the commission to go on the record. They had said previously, actually, I didn't want it to be known publicly that this had happened to me. But after the commission's report, I'm finally ready to tell my story. Because even though many people weren't happy with the commission's report, they said, you know, one good thing about everything that's happened in the last two years is that... More people are talking about it. A lot more people now know what mother and baby homes were, what county homes were, what happened to the women in these institutions. And a lot of women have said, you know, um, some who were in the podcast and some who aren't have said to me, well, actually, you know, it's been a conversation starter for me. I've been able to say, oh, God, did you see the report in the news or did you see, you know, this podcast is coming out or whatever it might be. And that's a conversation starter for them to say actually i was in one of these institutions or your grandmother or your mother was but you didn't know this so one good thing from all of this is the fact that people are talking about it now and for so many years women felt silenced so even in their personal lives more people are feeling empowered to talk about it even if it's with a select few um you know friends or family members women i think If they didn't realize it before now, many women realize, you know, the shame was not theirs. The shame was the Irish state. It was, you know, the Catholic Church, Protestant orders, whatever, that it wasn't the fault of the women. I think a lot of people realize that now, including the women themselves. In the making of the podcast, are there any memories or moments that particularly stand out to you There were a number of other stories, like when Mary Harney describes growing up in an industrial school. And we know elements of this before. But, you know, she describes the beatings that her and other women went under. She tells, you know, an an awful story um, earlier on in the series where she describes she was a little bit older. So she was tasked with, you know, helping the, um, the younger girls who wet the bed, waking them up in the middle of the night and making sure they went to the toilet. And on one particular night, you know, She slept through or whatever happened and the little girl wet the bed. So she describes her and another girl that morning. They weren't allowed to eat any breakfast because the younger girl had wet the bed and Mary had failed to stop her. So they were made to stand in the corner with the urine soaked sheet over their heads. So there's stories like that of just the cruelty of what we did to these women and children is just... I think for anyone, particularly for a woman living in Ireland, you think, Jesus, how did we...
0: I know. And the emotion in your voice and in my eyes at the moment, even though we've been working on this for the last year, so probably the question then is, why should people listen to it?
1: I think it's it's unavoidable. It's a part of our Irish history. Again, this is what some of the women say in the final episode. You know, you can't run away from it. You can't say, oh, this, this didn't happen or it happened a long time ago. Like the institutions were running up until the 90s. Yes, conditions were better. But it's not long ago and there I don't think there's a family in Ireland that's not affected in some way, whether it's an aunt or a mother or a grandmother or a sister or whoever, who passed through the system as an adult or a child. So it's a very important part of Irish history and I think unless we know what happened and we learn from those mistakes we're destined to repeat them and that is one of the things the women say in in the final episode they compare it to direct provision in some ways they say Ireland hasn't learned about this kind of mass institutionalization of people the damage it does and the fact that it will eventually have to atone for this be it now or in a few decades you know these these people were treated horribly and it's it's the Irish state who did that essentially so we need to we need to listen to them so we can avoid making those mistakes again and you know finally acknowledge that what happened to them was wrong and it wasn't their fault
0: great thanks so much Orla, for coming in and explaining that to us and congratulations on an amazing piece of work thank you very much Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Orla for joining us. And just a reminder that you can listen to Redacted Lives wherever you get your podcasts. And to let you know that our wonderful producer from The Explainer, Nikki Ryan, was also the producer of Redacted Lives. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Eva Barry. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us so we can continue to make more just like this one. There's a couple of things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or make a one-off donation. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people can discover it, listen and love it as well. Thank you and catch you next time.